0: Welcome to the Founder to Mentor podcast. My name is Mike Fada. I'm an entrepreneur with multiple nine-figure exits and a passion for health and mentorship. Join me on a journey where I connect with world-class founder mentors to inspire your personal and professional growth. Let's jump into it. I'm excited to have this conversation with uh, Alex Lieberman, co-founder and now executive chairman of Morning Brew. Welcome to Founder to Mentor, Alex. Thanks for having me. Pumped to do this. Awesome. Can you, uh, you want to start out, just give us an intro on yourself and on Morning Brew?
1: Yeah. As you mentioned, co-founder and uh, chairman of The Brew, been working on this business since, you know, kind of officially March of 2015, started toying around with the idea back in uh, October or November of 2014. So my story is, you know, pretty simple, I guess, partially simple because I'm just you know, not that old yet. I uh, I'm 29 years old, born in a suburb of New Jersey, about 40 minutes outside of New York City. I grew up in a finance family. So my dad worked in sales and trading. My mom worked in sales and trading. My grandpa worked in sales and trading. And so that was kind of what I wanted to do my entire life, not because I actually thought I was going to be good at sales and trading or that I thought it would be fun, but I had no reference point for what other jobs looked like, and I just wanted to be like my parents. Growing up in New Jersey, it was great for kind of the academic aspect. It I think it prepped me incredibly well for college. I found my high school harder than college, actually. I would say uh, socially, uh, I didn't like my high school, and I give that background because it provides context on why I chose Michigan. You know, Michigan is a very different school than the the high school I went to. Big Ten school, twenty four thousand undergrad, forty thousand with uh, graduate students, ton of school spirit. And I was looking for something very different than what I had done for the previous, let's call it 12 years of my life. Went to the University of Michigan. I uh, studied business there. Basically throughout college, my goal was the same as what it was growing up, which was to get a job on Wall Street, be a great trader, be like my parents, move back to New York City and live happily ever after. And so I did all the the internship things after freshman year, sophomore year, junior year. Uh, the way, you know, it typically works with finances. you have a junior year internship. If it goes well, you get a job offer full time going into your senior year. So you don't have to worry about jobs. That's what happened to me. So I get into my senior year at Michigan, had my job at Morgan Stanley lined up. So I had a ton of free time. Uh, during my senior year. And with that time, one of the things I did was I started writing a daily business roundup that I would send to students who I was helping to pre- prepare for job interviews. And it also just forced me to stay up to date with the business world. And that kind of side project is what turned into what is now Morning Brew. And just to bring it full circle, today, Morning Brew is a business media brand that is basically built for our generation. So what the Wall Street Journal and CNBC was for our parents or grandparents, that's what Morning Brew is for younger generations. We have 300 employees distributed across the US. We uh, write newsletters, do events, uh, social content, podcasts, video shows, predominantly advertising based. And um, it's been a really uh, amazing journey these last eight years. Yeah, thanks for that. Yeah,
0: it's a rocket ship. And I guess I, I read, I'm, I think I'm, you know, at, at 46. I'm a little bit outside of the demographic, but I really enjoy the brew. I think I've been, it's been a You're year. You're still
1: within it. You're yeah. still within it. Uh,
0: and and you, uh, you, you co-founded the business with, uh, with your, with your partner, Austin, you know, it comes up a lot of time when people are starting businesses like co-founder, do it alone, co-founder, was it? complimentary experiences uh, that, that brought you together? Was it a friendship? H- how was the co-founding story?
1: Yeah, it's it's funny because I read a lot of articles uh, these days about how to be really thoughtful about your co-founder, how to pick the right one if you're a technical versus non-technical co-founder. And I, I kind of laugh at it because the way that Austin and I became co-founders was, I would say, so much more organic and probably so much less thoughtful. I mean, candidly, what happened was I had started writing this newsletter, as I had mentioned, did not think about it as a business at all. The original newsletter wasn't even called Morning Brew. It was called Market Corner. It was a PDF that I created every day. And there was no website. So to to sign up for it, you had to tell me your email address. I would input it and add you to my listserv. So infinite friction to the product, yet a ton of people in the business school at Michigan signed up for it. So I want to say about a month or two months into writing this thing by myself, I was like, okay, I want to take this a little bit more seriously. I want to turn it into an actual email newsletter where it's like an actual template and still not thinking about it as a business. But I sent out a, an email to everyone who was a reader at the time being like, you know, I want to level this up. If you want to help me, let me know. And Austin reached out to me. He was a reader of the newsletter. We actually were in the same fraternity at Michigan, but we didn't really know each other because we're two years apart. He's two years younger. And I remember, you know, the conversation, like it was yesterday, we met in the winter garden, which is kind of like the main area in the business school at Michigan. And he just shared a lot of ideas for the product. And I was just really fascinated by the way that Austin thought. And I wasn't fascinated from the standpoint of being like, oh yeah, he's going to be my co-founder for this big business. Like he's going to think of this. I was just like, you know, I've always thought about myself as a, a very creative person. I try to, you know, be self loving about it. I'm kind of all over the place, which has upside and downside. And for Austin, when I spoke with him, my perception was like, wow, he's super linear, super practical, extremely thoughtful. And I was like, this just, this is just kind of a skill set that I want to be around. I want to be around this skill set. And so I ended up bringing on Austin as a co founder. A lot of people don't know, we actually had two other co founders for Morning Brew. Mm-hmm. So when we first launched it in March of 2015, that's kind of like when the, the OG, like new, Morning Brew with that name and an actual email newsletter template, we were using MailChimp at the time, went out. We had four co founders, two other uh, guys from Michigan. And I would say within six months, they kind of just naturally separated from the business. And, and I feel like there's a lot. There are a lot of stories of that, where it's just one of those things. Again, if you're going to be on the slog of building a business for eight years, you got you have to just be really passionate about what you're doing because you constantly have to make, constantly have to make trade offs of things you're giving up in life to do this. And a lot of times, those trade offs aren't rational. They're only rational for the person who's obsessed with doing the thing that they're doing. But yeah, that's that's how I brought on Austin again. I didn't. We weren't thinking about it as a business. I was just very attracted to his brain working about as differently from mine as possible.
0: Yeah, as helpful. Thanks. I, I, yeah, I, it's such a blend of like competency that that needs to go together. To, and and as you said, fit to make a co-foundership work. If not, uh, a lot of times it doesn't work. When did it become a real business? What was the uh, what was the first advertiser? Kind of when? when yep. did you think like, hey, we're going into business mode.
1: So fast forward, graduated from Michigan in 2015. When I graduated, we had somewhere between five and 10,000 subscribers. It wasn't enough for me to uh, quit my job uh, at Morgan Stanley or not even start my job. So I went to Morgan Stanley. I worked in sales and trading for a year. I always said that if we get to 100,000 subscribers, that's when I'll quit my job. Of course, I just was impatient and I quit my job in September of 2016. So about a year after going full-time at Morgan Stanley, quit my job when we had 30,000 subscribers. Uh, I want to say our first advertiser came in late 2016, early 2017. So the first ever advertiser actually came through one of our uh, investors. This guy, Mike Nardella, who we were, uh, introduced to through the founders of another media business called her campus. Mike Nardella had built a a newsletter on Boston college's campus. And he then ended up selling it and working at an agency, like a media agency. And so when we first left our jobs, he's like, here, I'll give you guys some beer money. And he basically got one of the clients at the agency to give us some like de minimis amount of money as our first advertisement. And, uh, I can't remember what the name of the business was, but basically it was a college ring and and merch business for people who wanted to rep their school. I can't remember the amount on that. The first ad that we ever secured ourselves was the University of Virginia, their Masters of Accounting program. I, I remember how much they paid for it. It was, uh, eight hundred dollars for an ad placement. Uh, you know, for context, today Morning Brews ads go from anywhere between. $25,000 a day at minimum to over $150,000 a day. And uh, the UVA ad, the way that came about, and this is just like, again, scarcity breeds creativity. Like when your ass is against the wall, you just have to figure out things. At the time we were like, we don't have any relationships in the advertising world. Uh, we don't understand this whole like agency versus direct to brand thing. Like that's foreign to us. We're just like, we need to make money. And so one day on LinkedIn, I got a uh, an in-mail message from the University of Mid- uh, Virginia. So like a sponsored in-mail from the admissions office, office at UVA being like, you seem like a great candidate for our master's of accounting program. And when I saw that, I was like, oh, interesting. So clearly I'm in their demographic of people who they think would be interested in their master's of accounting program. If I think that Morning Brew readers are a lot of people like me, but by transitive property, UVA should also be interested in morning brews readers. So I literally responded to the sponsored in mail saying, Hey, we have an audience that I think would be a good fit for your your master's of accounting program. Ended up getting on the phone uh, and they bought three ads with us. It was $800 a piece, $2,400 for the ad campaign. That was like what got some momentum going. Like, we it gave us confidence that we could actually sell ads on this thing? Because I think that was a big question. There weren't that many predecessors in the newsletter space. There was the skim, which was kind of always the North star for us. Like uh, th- They've proven that you can have a really meaningful business. Before that, it was like Daily Candy, but Daily Candy was kind of a, a story of the rise and fall of newsletters. I would say the big advertiser that came in early tw- early-ish 2017 that I think was the biggest legitimacy creator that kind of then got The snowball to really pick up speed was when we got Discover Card to advertise in Morning Brew. And again, in the early days, it's about just like finding ways to leverage warm access to the right people. What happened with Discover Card just briefly is we ended up finding out that the CMO of Discover Card was an avid reader of Morning Brew. And they were an avid reader because one of their kids found out about it in college. And so it's actually this really interesting thing. We're actually college kids. We're like the bedrock of our audience in the beginning, not just as great readers, but also great super connectors to parents because parents were always interested in what their kids were consuming. And so we basically just built a relationship with the CMO of Discover. She understood what we were going for and what where there was opportunity to make business better. And so she was just like, yeah, let's just like throw, you know, throw these guys a few dog bones uh, just to get them going and it was huge for us because at that time no other fortune 500 brand would have either trusted what we were doing or been like it's worth our time to put money into a newsletter that has like 100,000 readers like that's time taken away from us focused on you know buying super bowl ads or out of home ads in a subway station
0: yeah that's awesome in the in the consumer packaged goods that's like you know, getting a distribution at Walmart or Costco or something, everyone else, that you, every other retailer that you're not in goes, oh, okay, now we can sell this brand. Exactly. Yeah.
1: No one wants to take the first step. No one wants to assume the risk. And that's why I'll say also, you know, there's two kind of main buckets of advertising. There's um, direct response and brand advertising. And I would say generally when you're a smaller player, a lesser known player, getting brand advertising dollars is, Close to impossible because it's largely spent on belief and trust that this is the right audience that we want to get in front of. Direct response advertisers. So think venture back startups that what the, they really care about is we put a dollar in to advertise. How many dollars out do we get in sales? They don't really care where they're advertising as long as it's not content that they align with that makes them, that dilutes their brand. They don't really care where it is as long as the return on ad spend looks good. So I would say in the early days, 95% of our advertising dollars came from direct response advertisers. That has shifted a lot. And it has necessarily shifted, obviously, now in today's economic climate, a lot of those original advertisers are having a lot of difficulty as businesses if they're even still around. Interesting. How do you think about innovation? Like you, you started out on,
0: i imagine, advertising. Is still, the uh, it, 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 you know, you've, you've created different vehicles, whether it's the the podcasts, um, the events, the uh, the courses, the merch. Like, how are you thinking about innovation? I guess uh, up until where you are now, and 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 then what the future of Morning Brew looks like.
1: Yeah, I mean, the short answer is, we have seen. So many examples of media businesses that were kind of sexy and relevant for a period of time, and then they became less sexy and less relevant. And I think it's just because the news flow, the internet, it moves so fast. And because of that, consumers' tastes and preferences move so fast. And so I would just say it's one of those things like where you need to constantly be evolving based on what consumers are looking for or not looking for, but in a way that integrates with their behaviors. But at the same time, I would say the danger that's created by that is focus, right? Like how do you maintain focus while being really ambitious? And I would say like, you know, that is something that we've had to struggle with and figure out as our brand has scaled a lot, you know, for context, October of 2020, Morning Brew was at 50 employees. So that's when we sold a majority of our business. Today, the business has more than 300 employees. So we've grown in just about two years by 250 employees. We, we've 5X headcount and that creates challenges. And I think, you know, something that we've long believed is that if you just hire the right senior people to oversee different parts of the business, then you can always stay focused even as you stay ambitious. And I don't think that is exactly true because inevitably fires always come up and challenges always come up that you weren't expecting that pull your time. And time pulled in one direction means time not given in another direction. I also think from um, an internal focus perspective as like a company, like the 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 typical employee who say has only joined Morning Brew in the last six months, how do you explain to them that We have an education business. We have our daily newsletter. That was the OG thing. We have our B2B business. We now have multimedia with podcasts and video shows. How do you bring that all together in a way where if that employee was on out to dinner with friends and their friend asked them, Yeah, yeah. So like what are you doing at Morning Brew? And like what's Morning Brew up to? Where's the business headed? How would they be able to articulate that clearly? I think that becomes a lot more challenging. But I would say for us, the hard part hasn't been like thinking of the ideas. We have so many ideas for where media is going and how to better engage the millennial business professional. And you've only seen, I would say, bits and pieces of that. So one of our theses is that traditional business education is broken. What does it look like to do business education in a better format for the professional who doesn't want to drop $200,000 a year, um, but wants to invest in themselves in continuing education and building a network. That's why we built the education business. You know, for multimedia, you know, we're creating tons of video shows around personal finance, entrepreneurship, investing. And our view there is what we did for newsletters in making text-based business news more exciting and um, approachable than, say, the Wall Street Journal or the Financial Times. We think that same opportunity exists in video. Like there's no brand that owns digital video. And so I would say the ideas are abundant, but where we have to find our sweet spot is having a plan that is both ambitious, but doesn't dilute focus and ability across the business.
0: Did the mission uh, mission statement change through that process or...
1: No, uh, it it's kind of always been empower and educate the modern business lead leader with uh, engaging and accessible content. And mm-hmm. so obviously the first form factor was newsletter, but our view is that there are so many forms of content and ways that we can storytell business to business professionals. So the 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 mission has not changed. I would say what's changed is the way that mission manifests you know you know even to the simplest questions like one of the things that makes morning brews newsletter different is not just the accessibility of it it's that we have a certain voice that when you read morning brew it feels like you're talking to kind of like your well-read sarcastic passionate friend and we really we nailed that voice like we know how to do that in newsletters but then the a question became as we grew okay, we're going from one writer to say four writers. How do you teach those other three writers to write in a consistent voice with that one writer? So you can't tell that like it's multiple writers writing this newsletter. That was step one. Then step two was as we grow into other products like B2B events, so like a retail brew event and then a video show that we do on TikTok. How do those things uh, embody the Morning Brew voice of being kind of educational, but entertaining, quick-witted, when it's not in text anymore, how do you scale voice to other types of content? And so I'd say like questions like that have been kind of the existential questions as we've grown outside of a single product business.
0: You are one of the headlines of like grow a successful business in five, six years. You have an exit. You know, most entrepreneurs kind of want that. It's not, it's not too realistic, you know, like yeah. for most, but how's life changed for you since selling the majority of Morning Brew? Uh, both, I mean, you know, positive and and if there's any uh, yeah. negative in that.
1: I mean... I would say the positive is that I'll talk about the the positive personally and then also just like as a business. I think as a business selling the company gave us the confidence and opportunity to start taking more risks because we had proven that we could do it. I would say personally, you know, I never knew that I was going to be an entrepreneur. Again, I thought I was going to be in finance. I I never dreamed of like kind of having an outcome this big. And I would say for me, what I feel just incredibly privileged and grateful about is just this outcome, creating opportunities, like being able to choose what I do with my work for the rest of my life. Not, Not worrying about taking care of my family's, you know, everything from like housing to education, like taking care of my kids. Like I just feel so incredibly privileged to not worry about those things. So I would say that that's a huge positive. How has my life changed? My life hasn't really changed, at least in terms of like what I what I spend money on. Like I think a big question people always have is like when you make some amount of money, what do you do with it? Honestly, I got a dog. I would say my biggest expense around the deal was really good tax attorneys, which were worth every penny. Other than that, nothing's really changed. And I and I think I was actually reading a a really good um newsletter by this guy Jack Rains today um and he was writing a a story about kind of the time value of money and how this concept of the time value of money has almost been perverted and what what he basically said is you know we're taught to believe to know that $10,000 today if you invest it and don't spend it for the next 40 years and it compounds by 9% it'll be $342,000 40 years from now. And so what that's basically taught us is save that $5 versus spend that $5 on like a great coffee from Starbucks or, or wherever. I'm brought up about this is the idea of saving more than or making more than you spend, obviously very well-intentioned, but what it misses the point of is it can lead to kind of a scarcity mindset around money where we be, where we hoard money and we don't spend it Because we just envision it growing into this massive pot when we're 70 years old. And he's like, it's an interesting thing to think about where, you know, as a 29 year old, like he he would make the argument that as a 29 year old, I should be spending a lot of money right now because I'm in kind of the prime of my life to enjoy experiences versus when I'm 70, I won't actually be able to enjoy the same experiences of, uh, you know, like you're talking about traveling across the world soon. Like I wouldn't actually be able to enjoy that when I'm 70 years old. And so I bring this up because I would say, actually, I've really had to confront my relationship with money since selling the business. I've realized just how frugal I am and actually how kind of money anxiety I have increased after selling the business, which means it actually has nothing to do with financial security and stability. It has to do with kind of like my own stories around money. Like I actually viewed it as a negative that I've bought very little since the deal other than my dog. So that's been an interesting thing for me. Um, And I'm still working on it. Yeah.
0: Uh, Well, I went through something similar for sure. You know, like growing up with no money and being very frugal and then selling the business and getting in that same spot. I... Uh, for a number of years there, I wasn't enjoying myself as much as I should be when it wasn't about a huge amount of money. It was about the uh, mental release that like, it's okay. Uh, it's okay to go on that trip. It's okay to double down on an investment or whatever else I was that was going to bring more yep. experience to me. So, um, and,
1: I- and then the other thing I'll just bring up, again, I don't call it a negative, but I would say it's been a challenge is I've like, and I, I have still not answered it. I feel like I'm just like still every day trying to fight to get clarity. It's like, what what do I do now? And I would actually say that's less of a, a question around the deal of selling the business. And it's more, I moved from the CEO role in, so we sold in October of 2020. I moved out of the CEO role in April of 2021. So about a year and a half ago. And I say, I would say with that move, you know, I moved out of the day-to-day of the business. So I went from spending many hours a week on Morning Brew to let's just say somewhere around 30. A good chunk of that time is creating content, which I love doing. So I have a number of podcasts. The Crazy Ones is my entrepreneurship show with two other founders. Imposters is a show where I interview top performers um, at the intersection of mental health and career I do this thing called 60 second startup which is like my version of Sh- of Shark Tank meets man on the street for uh TikTok and Instagram reels and then the other part of the time it's you know like I'm talking strategy with my co-founder Austin but like he's kind of got it on lock like he he's he's running the business he's really thoughtful about the business I I have a lot of trust in him and so I've kind of been thinking about like what do I do next and I still haven't gotten to an answer I uh, I think one of the reasons that it's taken me a while to get to an answer is I think I had these preconceived notions of what I was like supposed to do. Like, I think there was this preconceived notion or story I had about I was supposed to run Morning Brew forever. So the fact that I wasn't the CEO forever means I did something wrong or something was wrong with me. Now that I've exited a business, I am supposed to build a bigger business. I'm supposed to uh, kind of run a company at every stage of the company, because that's how I maximize my learning. And what I think the reason it's taken me a while and while's are relative, it's been a year and a half. But for me to figure out what I do next is I think I've wrestled these kind of old stories with the new stories that I'm trying to create, which is what do I enjoy doing? Okay. I know I enjoy being creative. I know I enjoy spending time with people. I know I enjoy building New shit early on. I don't know that I enjoy like managing or scaling, but that is very counter to my old stories. So I think a lot of what i'm I've kind of wrestled with is old stories uh, fighting new stories in trying to discover what I'm gonna spend, you know, the next fifty years of my life on. But also to that point, as I think about that, even changing my language where it's not the next fifty years of my life, what do I want to do for the next six months?
0: Yeah, uh, and and you know transitions hard, and even large success makes it even harder. You know, I, I mean, my my personal story took me three years to find out what my what's next, right? And now I feel like I'm finally in it, but it is really about. What you want what you want to do and what you enjoy like i see you're investing now in other businesses what are you looking for in those investments is is it is it a money-making opportunity yeah founder is it a product is it in a certain industry because you have access to a lot of a lot of founders a lot of entrepreneurs a lot of investment opportunities
1: yeah well what i'll first say is why did i start it, the, the the question i asked myself is like why did i start angel investing and i would say there's some part of me that started angel investing because that was the thing that entrepreneurs do after an exit And then there was some part of me that says, like, I know that I enjoy helping entrepreneurs build their businesses. Like it it is, I both enjoy and I think I'm good at providing support to entrepreneurs who are at various parts of the journey. And so angel investing seems like active angel investing seems like it could be a good way to do that. My game plan was basically, why don't I angel invest for a year? You know, my plan was to write 10 to 15. $10,000 checks that that was the plan and just see how it feels. I'm basically a year into writing checks. And I would say my honest answer is I don't really love angel investing. Like I I don't really love it because most of the time is spent like analyzing businesses and deciding, do I want to underwrite this with my money? And not a lot of the time is spent like actually working with founders. Like, yes, like an active angel can be very helpful to founders, but like I would I'd rather spend like 80% of my time talking through challenges with founders and like 5% underwriting deals. And so I think it's actually been an eye-opening thing for me where it's like, yeah, I don't actually think that I really like angel investing. And so now where my head starts going towards is like, okay, is like the venture studio model interesting to me. The idea of incubating and building new businesses because that that kind of works my creative muscles. It works my early stage building muscles. And then I can find great operators who can learn kind of the game of entrepreneurship by building businesses that I've helped to launch. So that's kind of like the next thing that I'm going to explore. For me, I would say the number one thing I, I focused on while angel investing was removing adverse selection and what I mean by that is, I think picking as an, a new angel investor is kind of a fool's errand. Like I think the average person is going to be a bad picker. I assumed I would be a mediocre picker, and so I think then it's like, what can I? What's the big thing I think I can control is access to good deal flow. Because I think the thing that most angel investors have issue with is they just don't see good deals, so they get they see B and C level deals versus A level deals. So whether it's repeat founders building something or the same deals that top level VCs are seeing. So I actually spent a lot of my time just making sure I was getting access to good deal flow.
0: Yeah. Well, you're you're set up well to do that. Uh, I, I found the same thing. I mean, I, I'm not a angel investor because I don't, I know the startup grind is very very hard and and uh, and I don't I don't want that stress. I want the uh, I, I like the venture space where there's a proven business model and then you can go and really help the founders build the team, build the strategy, build the structure Yeah, like, that heavy growth phase is what I personally uh, personally I love it. What does mentorship uh mean to you? Uh have you had some good mentors that have helped uh helped yeah. the path? How do you think about mentorship?
1: The way that I think about mentorship is people who enable you to see the world differently than you see it today. And I would say there are a few people who acted as really strong mentors to me during Morning Brew, uh, Morning Brew's journey. And I would actually say also, like I don't think of mentors in the traditional sense. Uh, I, would, I would say the way that people traditionally think of mentors is someone that you know who is older than you who has been through a lot more and now sharing their wisdom. I don't think about mentors that way. I think some that could be one type of mentor, but again, I think it is anyone, whether you know them, you don't know them, alive or dead, that gets you to see the world in a different way. And so when I think about my mentors for Morning Brew, one of them is an investor of ours who I've become really close friends with. He uh, was the CEO of Time Warner Cable. And I, I view him as a mentor not just because he was really helpful in kind of morning bruise journey but because i i see so much of myself in him like i i i see and as someone who you know lost their dad young i think both honoring kind of the lessons my dad taught me while also having kind of people who not ever will replace my dad but provide kind of value in a way that uh, mirrors being a father figure, I think is really special to me. So that's what this investor has done for me. I would say another mentor of mine is Austin, my co-founder. Like I view him as a mentor about seeing the world and thinking in this kind of analytical, critical way better than 99% of people I know. The, the one other thing I'll say about mentorship is I actually, I have had to change my mentors a lot over the last year and a half, there's a, uh, so Ali Abdal is this great YouTuber and he has this acronym that I just think is great for mentorship. He calls it uh, your MBA, your mental board of advisors. So who is kind of like, if you visualize in your head, a, a, a round table at a restaurant with you and say 10 other people who are those people and how do they get you to see the world in a different way for the longest time as an entrepreneur, those 10 people, were like successful entrepreneurs. They were like Elon, Bezos, et cetera. And I think that was really valuable for a few things, learning business lessons from them, uh, seeing how they scale their businesses, et cetera, like creating focus as an entrepreneur. But I think it was bad in two ways. One is, I think it created a sense of me failing myself if I didn't have the exact stories that they had. And I think the second is it made me neglect areas of life that are wildly important to me, then maybe those 10 people aren't the best mentors for Maybe they're great mentors for building and scaling a business, but when it came to philanthropy and giving, or when it came to family and spending time with family, or when it came to like being playful or self-love, like a lot of these other things, they didn't necessarily provide mentorship there. And so I've actually found myself reworking this kind of mental board of advisors a lot over the last 12 months.
0: Yeah, I love that. I mean, and I think it is... the, the paradigms changing on mentorship where it was old school and it was like you're one person and now it's like there's there's so much I, I i like i quite i like the term mass mentorship because then you can go and like whether it's uh someone that you you model after some parts of your life and you, and you don't know them but you just you know And i would say you know you're a mentor right the amount of programming and the amount of content that you're putting out to help people say hey think of something a little different uh, or here's a good strategy for that or, or totally close to that i mean that's peer-to-peer that's people that you look up to that's that's a book that you read. And, and uh, I encourage a lot of people just to, to think about not just hunting down one mentor, but like, you know, ha- have have the specialist in your life that you can learn from for all different aspects of your life. Yeah,
1: I, I think that's spot on. I think um, it, even in the same way we think about our friendships in life and like different friendships serve different purposes. I think mentorship works the same way where I would even encourage people first before thinking about who are your mentors are thinking about what are parts of your life? that you want mentors to get you to think differently about. Because then when you decide who your mentors are, whether they're alive or dead, whether you know them or you don't know them, you can then kind of reflect on your initial intention of those 10 people who are sitting at the table with you. Are they satisfying? Call it like the 10 different things that you really want help gaining clarity around in your life. Yeah, that's great.
0: Do you have any uh, regular routines or habits that you think are just foundational for you being successful as an entrepreneur?
1: This is one that I um I I feel like is not a typical answer, but it's honest for me is being playful and being interested. Like I love being playful. Like so much of my life I think about how can I be like a kid again. I feel like we spend so much of our life at as adults, whether it's through mindfulness and being present, whether it's like experiences with friends, like It's all about, in some ways, how do we Benjamin Button ourselves into being like a kid who's carefree and sees the world with wonder. And so, yeah, for me, being playful is a huge thing. Like I'm always trying to find new activities that get me to see the world differently, to think of problems that potentially can turn into business ideas, but also like make me feel like I'm having fun and meditating without meditating. It's like the the old adage of, You know, if you want to get someone to do something healthy, but it kind of sucks to do it in a healthy way, make it feel like they're eating ice cream when they're really eating cauliflower. Like I do that in my life. So it's like over the weekend, I built a a 3000 piece hotel out of Legos. Two weeks ago, my fiance and I went to do pottery. Last week, we went to a hockey game. Uh, Devils played the avalanche. Like I'm constantly just thinking about like, what are new experiences to have? That can generate ideas on the professional side, but allow me to be like a kid.
0: Yeah, that's great. The more things that can keep you in the flow state, uh, and and when you're in a when you're a kid, you're you're in flow probably the majority of the time. You just don't know it, but you don't have all the stresses of the world like taking knocking you out of flow. So
1: uh, exactly.
0: Is is there any questions that uh, that you wish that I asked you that
1: I didn't? There's nothing that immediately comes to mind. I think uh, you hammered uh, a lot of stuff.
0: Yeah, I got I got one more for you. Um, I just started uh, my newsletter, the Unstoppable Entrepreneur. You got any advice for me?
1: Make sure the content is really freaking good and worth people's time. I think it's even harder to create a newsletter today than we what we did with The Brew in 2015 because uh, ease of creating newsletters is lower than ever before or higher than ever before. The barrier is lower than ever before with new tools like Substack, Beehive, Ghost, et cetera. So anyone can create a newsletter, the barrier is low. It means more people are subscribed to newsletters than ever before. So uh, yeah, I would say my two pieces of advice are make... Sure, that you focus 90% of your time on the actual content and product and 10% of your time on growth because focusing growth strategies on a bad product uh, will just waste your time and everyone's time. Focusing uh, most of your time on product will make something that you're proud of and people will come back for and tell others about. So you just turn your readers into salespeople when you make a really good product. I would say the second is optimize the shit out of subject lines because it can be the difference of depending on the size of your list, hundreds or thousands more or less people reading your newsletter. And at the end of the day, if you're going to spend your time creating really good content and that content should be read by people, you're doing a disservice if people can't read that. It's worth your time making sure people open it because of a good subject line.
0: I'll take that from the uh, from the newsletter expert. Mine's more on the give back and just sharing some of my uh, entrepreneurship uh, journey. But uh, so far so good. In the first couple, it's like seventy five percent open rate, and people that's amazing sharing it and stuff. So uh, best in class. It's really about just sharing the the uh, stories. So if people want to connect with you, what's the? uh, I know you're all over social, but is there? Is yeah, I
1: would say follow me on Twitter at business barista on LinkedIn. You know, just look up uh, Alex Lieberman. And then I would just say that uh, if you enjoyed hearing the way that I think about business, um, my new show, The Crazy Ones with Jesse Pugy and Sophia Russo, every week we talk about basically the most important topics that allows entrepreneurs to better build their businesses. So we've talked about how to hire well, how to fire well. A lot of companies are doing layoffs right now, how to think about that, how to pay yourself as a founder when you go full-time. So if you're interested in topics like that, check out uh, the crazy ones on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Awesome, yeah. And we'll put that uh, in the show notes so people can uh, people, people can find you as well. So, uh, thanks so much, Alex. I uh, appreciate your time. And uh, I know that uh, you got a number of things going on. So I know that- our, Thanks uh, so much for having me. Thank you for listening to the Founder to Mentor podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Be sure to check out the links and resources in the show notes. You can help the show, please, by subscribing and leaving a positive review. As always, feel free to get in touch with me on social at Mike Fata. That's it for now. See you next time.